0: Hello, hello everyone. We want to apologize for missing the drop of our episode last week. We are PhD students after all, and well, we should probably be studying. Nick is getting ready to defend his second year paper proposal, and I was actually in the hospital for a hot minute due to having two unexpected back-to-back surgeries. So we decided to take a break from the podcasting for a week, but no worries. We are back and ready to share our awesome interviews with you. This week, we spoke with Dr. Patrick shoelist He, along with three co-authors, recently had their paper titled, Can I Sell You Avocados and Talk to You About Contraception? Well, it depends which comes first, Anchor Roles and Asymmetric Boundaries, accepted for publication at the Academy of Management Journal. Patrick was a lot of fun to talk to, and we think you are really going to like this episode. So buckle up and get ready. This is We Should Probably Be Studying. <laughs> All right, it looks like Patrick is in the waiting room.
1: All right, let's do this.
0: Hello, hello.
2: Hi. Hi there, nice to meet you folks.
0: Nice to meet you. You too. So I guess we can just start off. um, Just tell us a little bit about yourself both academically and personally.
2: Yeah, so academically, uh, my PhD is from Ivy Business School in, in London, Ontario at Western University. And then professionally, I have a PhD from Ivy Business School, which is at Western University in London, Ontario. And uh, I've basically researched uh, two sets of interrelated things. So one of them is entrepreneurship and uh, in in sub-Saharan Africa, mostly in Ghana. And then the second one is looking at the challenges of development organizations that they face, and that's been in Ghana as well as in Tanzania. And so I think what ties those together is is really a focus on context and how it changes phenomenon and perhaps challenges some of the implicit assumptions of existing theorizing. And then personally, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm from Canada uh, originally, though now I live in Finland. Um, and I uh, actually just got married about three weeks ago. Uh, my my now wife is uh, Finnish. Her name is Salu, uh, which roughly translates to fairy tale. So, uh, yeah, she she has a it's like the Finnish version of the name Saga, which you would know in uh, in Swedish.
0: Well, that's so. cool. Congratulations.
2: Thank you. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> How did you get into the research um, in Africa?
2: I wish I had a, a grand story to tell, but there's yeah. a large amount of happenstance uh, okay. <laughs> involved here. So. Basically, we've got to go back to my undergraduate degree, which is in mechanical engineering and and management. And I had a year off after finishing my undergrad and just through connections, somebody who was involved with a charity in Haiti, Haiti obviously not being in Africa, but the connection will come close enough. Got to make sure your your listeners don't think I'm bad at geography, Um, but yeah, so they needed some engineering work done, and I ended up getting involved that way, which sort of opened my eyes to, let's say, the world beyond North America um, and, uh, well, especially Canada and the U.S., and uh, then when I started my PhD, because by the time I spent time in Haiti, I'd already applied to do my PhD. I was intending to focus more on things related to, let's say, in the environmental side of sustainability in large corporations. Uh, but having you know, seen another side of things that I found interesting, uh, it just so happened that the supervisor I ended up with, uh, she had a number of projects in Rwanda at the time. So I spent the first summer of my PhD in Rwanda and then the interest sort of uh, built from there.
1: Mm -hmm. Neat. So what was the driving force that actually initially caused you to pursue a PhD? I think it was
2: largely two things. One of them very pragmatic, which I'll start with. And that was, you know, there's this momentum of when you're in the academic setting of just continuing in the academic setting, the path of least resistance. And that's a a very bad reason to pursue a PhD. But fortunately there was the second part, which was, you know, curiosity and really wanting to be able to, let's say, focus on understanding a, a single thing or understanding a set of things quite deeply.
0: And so how did you start collaborating with your co-authors on this paper?
2: that's that's also a good question uh i was thinking about that today and i can't for the life of me remember how jeff and i jeff kistruck being the, the third author on, on this paper how for the life of me i i can't remember how we came to know each other um <laughs> he's just been one of those people who i've sort of always known he actually graduated from uh ivy a number of years before me but was you know had broadly similar interests so i think i just you know knew him from from conferences and whatnot. And so I eventually ended up doing a postdoc with him. Uh, he's at York University at Schulich. Uh, as part of that, there was a number of projects arranged. Tanzania that were being put together. Um, the, the focal one that we're going to talk about today being one of them. And Jeff had brought on Winnie as well as Miguel. I guess that puts Jeff at the center of uh, the, the collection of co-authors here.
1: So yeah, so before we start, you know, diving deep into the paper, Let's start with like a quick elevator pitch of what your paper is about so our listeners understand what we'll be talking about today. For
2: sure. And that's uh, that's always a hard question. Um, you know, academics aren't known for being concise, but uh, I I'd put it this way is. You know, imagine that you know somebody who has two different roles, a role being, you know, we'll we'll use sort of a lay definition, a role just being something they do. So imagine that you have a friend who you know is both a friend and a professor or as a parent and a manager, somebody who might own their own business and is also a family planning counselor, as is in this current paper, or somebody who's a nurse and a manager. And the question is, you know, they have both those roles, you know, they have them, they know they have them. Can they talk about both of them with you at any given time? Is there a boundary between those roles? Or do they have to sort of decide, you know, I'm only going to talk about one of them right now. And what this paper really finds is that the answer to that question is one of it depends, it really depends on which role you start in. So in In our case, where they both had a self employment role as well as were involved in family planning counseling, um, if they started an interaction with somebody else, and again, that somebody else might know, you know, knows that they have both those roles. um, If they start that interaction with them, you know, in their own business and their self employment role, they can easily go back and forth between the two roles. There's no real boundary to bringing out the other one, it's very permeable. Whereas if they start in the counseling role, uh, they can't, they largely have to stick to that. And the reason is to bring up the second role was sort of violate the expectations of that family planning role. And so we can get into some of the uh, reasons for that, but more or less what we found was that there's these weird and unexpected asymmetric boundaries uh, between the two roles. And that was not something we expected to see uh, heading in, but it was also quite interesting.
1: Yeah. How did this idea come about?
2: So to give a bit of background on this, we started working with uh, a partner here, a development organization, and we started working with them because they were having some challenges with, uh, you know, these, the 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 folks who were sort of being their family planning volunteers in the communities. Um, Basically, just they were those folks were were just generally discontented and we were curious to sort of find out what and see if there was anything we could uh, uh, suggest that could help improve the improve things. And we originally sort of went to the field and did our first sets of interviews thinking about things through an identity lens about we thought that, you know, folks were having, our informants were having two separate roles that would have very different identities with them. And as a result, there'd be some sort of a clash. But that's not what we found. We yeah. quickly yeah. found yeah. that yeah. they they didn't seem to have any psychological challenges with with handling both of these roles. And yeah. instead, the challenge came more on, let's say, the relational side of, they more so found that it was like, Hey, I can't talk about this because I'll annoy the other person type thing, or I'll violate some type of expectations. And that eventually led us to the story about role theory um, that this paper is 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 grounded in. there There's also one one separate small little uh, caveat in here is that the the paper focuses on work community role pairings, which is also not something we expected to see going in. So that part sort of emerged through the uh, through the, through the data.
0: I think you did a really good job on pitching why this community and work pairing is so important to consider. And I thought you did a really good job at justifying why this context that you studied it in fits the role pair, but How did you go about selecting this particular setting and sample for the study?
2: So one of the things that guided this study was we originally partnered with a development organization, and we wanted to look at something that they found to be a a pressing challenge and that there also wasn't like a a readily apparent, let's say, theoretically driven solution to. And that led us to focus on this challenge with the... um, with the volunteers. The, the focus on the work community role pairing was sort of just fundamental to, to or, or foundationally embedded in the, you know, the nature of the phenomenon we were looking at. But of course, us referring to this as a work community role pairing wasn't something we did right off the bat. We actually, the term I would use is we were getting pushed around by the literature quite a lot, where the literature tends to focus on work work role pairing so things like you have multiple roles in the same organization or work home work family a variety of terms are used which i'm, I'm sure you know far better than i do having done a, a rather extensive review we we struggled for a while because we couldn't really neatly map what we were seeing to how the literature was explaining role pairings. And it wasn't until we sort of had that eureka moment of saying, maybe we should lean into this difference and sort of use it to problematize what we're looking at, that things became a lot easier for us.
0: I think that that is where a big contribution comes from your paper is that you are looking at that community work role pairing, because we don't see that. And then in terms of writing the paper, how did you and your co-authors decide to divvy up the work? Did um, like two of you decide to do a lot of the ethnography side of it and then some decided to do the writing or was it everyone kind of had a hand in every part of it?
2: So I, I'd say it was much closer to the the latter if everybody was involved in in all of it. I think other than with with Winnie, uh, who's at the University of Dar es Salaam, she was mainly just involved in the data collection and some of the interpretation there. But the other three co-authors, we were very heavily involved and it was very much an equal load. I I think where we sort of most evenly shared things was trying to talk through problems on the data. So having very, or not on the data, but in the paper, uh, especially when it came to the revisions of how do we address things, that was very equally shared. But then it was, you know, going back to the data, I was taking the lead in managing all the data um, and doing the actual granular coding. Miguel, the second author had, uh, was also involved in that. So we would code things independently and then speak about them but I sort of had the lead for organizing that overall and then uh, writing was also fairly fairly evenly shared though a bit different perhaps between the sections.
1: How was the review process? You know was it smooth? Was it easy? You know, uh, simple comments from the reviewers and you can just answer those with ease or you know were you butting heads with reviewers? Were there areas where you know you gave pushback to the yeah. reviewers No, I I want this done my way. Like, (laughs) what was that whole process?
2: So I think this review process was overall highly constructive um like my my other co-authors who have been through far more review processes than have i they commented very very consistently that just like this is super developmental and this is the way the review process should work so you know we owe a, a debt of gratitude both to our our editor heather vaugh as well as to the the three anonymous reviewers and in terms of the substance of that Generally, I would say they pointed, they being collectively the the review team, uh, pointed things out where on first read, I'm like, oh, that's a lot of work to manage that point. But on second read, it's very much, well, you know, they they have a point here, and we we do need to address this, and, and doing so makes the paper better overall.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: About how long did you have to do the revision, since it is a qualitative paper?
2: To the first R&R, we had a four-month window, and we asked for three separate extensions. We should have just asked for the extra four months uh, the first time, but uh, the editor was was very, again, she was very, uh, very, very understanding, because we, we ended up collecting some additional data from Tanzania, and that was a of an adventure at the time given covid happening plus tanzania just had a new president so that was that that was a bit of an adventure but we got that done because we needed it to sort of address the the mechanisms of what was causing this boundary strength asymmetry
0: what kind of research did you have to go back and recollect
2: yeah so it was trying to figure out why because we had a very solid understanding that just phenomenologically these asymmetric boundaries existed like if people started in the self-employment role pretty weak boundary between them if they started in the family planning role, very strong boundary between them. But going back a step, because it is AMJ after all, and you know there is uh, an onus of not just pointing out an interesting outcome, but having to explain why it was there. Our initial explanations were quite weak, so we had to go back to better understand, and this was one of the sets of comments from the reviewers that our original explanations didn't seem to, to fully answer it, or, or there were some challenges with it. So we went back and spoke with a number of our informants again to get better handle on that, um, which ultimately led us to sort of differences in, in terms of three sets of expectations, three contrasts between those were ultimately causing it.
0: Oh, neat.
1: Yeah. So for PhD students or, you know, just researchers in general who want to do qualitative work, yeah. what advice do you have for them?
2: Yeah, that one's uh, that one's tough because I, I think, uh, you know, the qualitative process is it's hard to even look back and say sort of where particular insights came from, um, but they eventually got there. I'd say there's two in general. So one is if something strikes you as interesting, it probably is. And if you sort of lack a way of explaining it, then there's probably something there. And so it's like those those parts when you're, you're looking at your data, and you get a grounded understanding of what your informants are speaking about. And it's it's really the things that you find unexpected or you find unexplainable, especially when they happen in a patterned way. Those are sort of the core insights, you know, to make sure you pay attention to and try to figure out why they're there. It may take a while to iterate and you know, figure out the proper theoretical framing for it. But that's ultimately the nugget that a paper has to be built around. And for us, it was this sense of like, well, it's really weird that somebody can know you have both roles, but is it's not okay to bring up the second one if you start in one of those two roles. Like, that's that's just weird. It's like, if I know that you're both a teacher as well as a researcher, why can't you talk about both those things at the same time? Mm-hmm. And the second one, I'd say, is not letting yourself get pushed around by the literature. And this was one of the, the biggest challenges I think I have of, and perhaps it's because of my engineering background and wanting to categorize everything and see relationships between everything. And by getting pushed around by the literature, I mean, essentially feeling the need to conform to how other people have spoken about either a phenomenon or a theoretical lens. In our case, it was especially about people having focused on work-work role pairings and work uh, home role pairings and you know there was this tension of trying to conform what we were seeing to that um, to that terminology and getting pushed around by it instead of stepping back and saying no it's pretty clear we have something different here yeah. Yeah. and and there's also a, a a second part of that in that most of the the literature related to boundary strength has tended to focus on let's say the more psychological side of it and, and what's going on in people's heads. Um, whereas we were finding what was driving this was definitely not something psychological. It was more expectations that were held in a relationship. And so that took a long time to sort of have that aha moment. And once we had it, it sort of freed us up to write about what we were seeing much more freely instead of having to like tiptoe around and sort of, you know, avoid the fact that this were these were expectations Contrasts and expectations, rather than contrasts and identities, that were causing issues. And once we sort of came to terms with, no, let's lean into that. That's a strength of the paper. That made it much easier to write.
0: So, with your background, when you were a PhD student, were you heavily trained in qualitative methods, or quant methods, or both? Uh,
2: so a little bit of both, and uh, or I should say a lot of both. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, I think. Where I actually learned the most about qualitative methods, so there was, of course, courses, uh, a wonderful selection of courses, but I think especially with qualitative methods, it's as much art as it is science, and there's only so much you learn in a classroom, so one of the ways that I think I, I learned absolutely the most about qualitative research was there was this uh, working group, something along the lines of the Southern Ontario Qualitative Methods Working Group. So there'd more or less be folks who would get together from the University of Toronto, from York University, from Ivy, and we'd all get together in probably three or four times a year and just speak about ongoing projects and sort of give advice on early ideas all the way up to people having r And so... It was, you know, sitting around a table, listening to people who are much more experienced at this than am I, like Sarah Kaplan, especially, who's the the, the organizer of these. Um, Just sort of their approach and their insights on uh, qualitative work were just so very
1: informative. What do you think, I guess, in your opinion, what makes a good co-author for you? Working styles or strategies, you know, personal qualities, like what makes a potential, you know, successful co-author, you know, for you?
2: yeah so i i think there's sort of two sides to that one is you know just how we work together in general so i can be a very stubborn person and it is quite important for me to have a co-author who's willing to tell me to stop being stubborn um and to, to sort of you know let's look at things a different way um as well as co-authors, let's say more the, the content side. So people who have expertise in different areas. Um, and so for me being relatively junior, um, I don't think I have the best ability to position things in the literature and to you know problematize things in a way that other folks are going to find interesting. Um, mm-hmm. My personal strengths are more in the, the data, the analysis um, and the rigor that's embedded in that. Uh, so having a, a research team with more senior scholars who are able to, you know, really help on the positioning of the paper, that was that was super helpful.
0: Yeah, personally, I resonate with it a lot. I was telling one of my committee members on my dissertation that I found some really cool findings from a qualitative data set that I have. I said, you know, I'm I've been trying to work on this by myself, but I don't think. I'm able to really tell the story or position it in the literature like it needs to be. She had said, you know, that doesn't surprise me. A lot of younger students have that problem. And she said, what we need to do is we need to get a research team together for you. And you don't need to do it by yourself. And I was like, Mm -hmm. okay. And so I just sent out a proposal to a senior researcher and then actually another one of our PhD students who mm-hmm. is very interested in learning the qualitative methods that I work on. I have found that I really have experienced that firsthand. And I think it can really slow you down if you think like you need to do it by yourself. Cause there's always kind of For that sure. drive as a young PhD student, you're like, I wanna show that I can make a contribution <laughs> myself. Like For I sure. can do this, but then you always have to think about well, you really don't know as much as you would like. So if you want to get it published, probably want to invite somebody on your team.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that absolutely makes sense. And I I also think there's perhaps this, uh, at least I find it uh, with with my PhD students, this sort of hesitancy sometimes to want to share ideas because we sort of like guard our ideas because we want to develop them. We're afraid of sharing them and being told they're not great yet. And I think there's something to be said about just like getting over that and just understanding like no idea is great at the start. And the more you chat with folks and the more experience you have on that co-author team to help develop it, the the better. Yeah,
0: for sure. And, you know, I think part of that is because we hear stories about professors that will shoot down ideas that you have and you never really are sure about sharing your ideas with a new professor because you might think, oh, well, they're just going to think I'm stupid and they're not going to work with me. And and I've had an experience myself personally where I would give ideas that I think are really cool and I would have a professor that would come back and just shoot me down every time. And so I would get very self-conscious about my ideas, but the same ideas I would pitch to like three other professors and they were so encouraging and saying, yeah, that yeah. is fantastic. Keep going with it. And so For sure. I think it's really a, a mentor-mentee pairing that can yeah. really make it beneficial or it can really be detrimental to wanting to <laughs> share your ideas.
2: Absolutely.
0: So I'm really curious, when you submitted the paper right off the bat, were you super confident and thinking, this is a great idea. We found something cool we might get an R&R here. Or were you like, I don't know if we're going to get an R&R, but we're still going to try.
2: Yeah. So uh, to be entirely honest, I think our bar for the submission at first, because, you know, AMJ, of course, has the acceptance rate it does, which is quite low. Our bar essentially was, we think we have something interesting here, um, but we're not sure what other people are going to think about it. So if we submit this, are we going to embarrass ourselves by submitting this? Or is it like, you know, at least a competent piece of work? And it turns out that other folks also found it interesting, um, which was, of course, of course, a a good thing and a reassuring thing. But the paper changed an awful lot along the way. So we I I guess that's all to say we sort of had a very low bar at the beginning. But then again, having a paper that doesn't embarrass you at AMJ might be considered a reasonably high bar. So yeah, (laughs) uh, but but yeah, so I'd like to be able to sit here and say we were, you know, 100% confident because we knew our idea. We knew this was going to, you know, blow people's minds, but that's just not the reality of it. I, 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 i think the review process is so idiosyncratic that you just never know
0: yeah. right well and like with my um review piece at jom that mm-hmm. stemmed from my second year paper idea yeah. um, i had found that they were doing the they do it every year but at the time i didn't realize it was every single year they do the review issue and i yeah. I had said, you know, I think that this is missing in our literature and it would be very beneficial. And so Mm -hmm. I was actually fairly confident when I submitted the proposal and I thought we Mm -hmm. had a really good research team put together for it. And so for me, I had a little bit of confidence and in back of my mind, I was like, well, they could always reject it. But in my own mind, I kind of thought, eh, it would benefit at least me to be able to do this. So maybe it would benefit somebody else. And so from that, I kind of drew some confidence on it. (laughs) Um, But it also was not empirical. It was a review issue. And I think that changes how confident you can or can't be. Um, Yeah,
2: that makes some sense.
0: Yeah. About how long did it take from when you started collecting the data to when it ended up getting accepted? Do you remember?
2: yeah, so the first data collection for this would have been in uh, the summer of 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then we collected three waves of data initially, up to and including the summer of 2017. Then the paper sort of did a slow revolve for a little bit and, and got got on the back burner for a bit, um, then picked back up again in, in 2020. So by all said and done, between when it was the data collection started and when it was accepted, it was about six years.
1: Wow. Yeah, you mentioned that, you know, in the review process, the idea changed, you know, dramatically. Like, do you have, like, how dramatically did it change, like, in terms of framing?
2: So, uh, a lot. So, there was always (laughs) some role theory there, um, but originally our our framing was around moving discussions of hybridity from the organizational level to the individual level. Like, we talk about hybrid organizations having hybrid, uh, you know, social and economic goals, um, and we we were trying to position this as hybridity at the individual level. And the reviewers were not in love with that, but did find uh, and they and they had good reason to. There is potentially a story there, but this data set did not particularly did not fit it particularly well, um or just the the phenomenon we were studying. So yeah, so we we got, let's say, a very typical a and j first round review, which is we think there's something interesting there, uh, but your framing needs to change, and some of your data and analysis and findings also need to change. Um, So like more of just like a, we think this is interesting, take our direction and see what you can do from here. Um, It was very good direction in terms of better grounding this in in role theory, but still that was a, I'd say very risky uh, uh, R&R. But after the second submission then the paper had more or less stabilized and it was stopped becoming about the overall framing and more let's say parts within the framing so about how we were connecting to specific other papers
0: that makes sense um let's start some ideas of how scholars can build off of your research and um, what kind of research ideas do you think someone could use your work and then make further contributions to the field
2: yeah, and that's oh, uh, well, that's that's perhaps my 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 favorite thing to talk about. Um, and <laughs> yeah. I, I think there's there's two major categories here. So one is part of this paper, we make an argument that theory derived primarily in the global north. Well, folks might also say the developed world, the Western world, whatever term you want to use. I think whatever term you use, somebody's going to get mad at you. Sure. Um, And uh, I actually teach a course called Market-Based Development in the Global South, and I have that tomorrow. And we're going to talk about terminology and how to refer to groups of countries tomorrow. Um, So this is on my mind. But Mm -hmm. getting getting back to your question, um, one of the arguments we make in that paper to help problematize it is that uh, theory derived primarily in the global north might not be able to transfer unchanged into settings in the global south because there's a broad set of potential contextual differences. Mm-hmm. Here there's a number of things related to the nature of roles and the sort of lack of anonymity around the roles and the fact that there's very dense overlapping social networks embedded in a context of scarcity. And so I think there's a a broad argument to be made about better just exploring organizational management and social phenomenon in the global south because there's a I I think there's this often (laughs) parochial uh approach to things of saying like whatever happens in especially in the u.s must be the way it works everywhere and that's uh not not true i think the literature is moving past that but there's a there's a, a lot of openings now um, to explore that. So that's that's sort of very open-ended and is more of a, a context, a contextualizing theory sort of argument. The second part of this would relate more specifically to role theory. So I'd love to see, you know, everything from having some quantitative explorations of what we find, um, you know, we can, there's ways that somebody could measure this and and sort of test this and extend theory in that way, all the way to trying to see what happens in more complicated situations. Because here we had two roles. One of them was a sort of very simple role in many ways. The self-employment role was, yeah, there were relatively few expectations, so relatively few expectations that could be not met. Whereas the community health volunteer role that one was much more complex, and there was just a slew of uh, expectations that could be broken by bringing up the other role. So you sort of had this situation where uh, the the three sets of expectations that could be broken, that there was differences on, they all worked in favor of a stronger boundary for one of the roles. I think there's something that could be interesting about if you sort of had competing, sets of expectations so not uh not all three that are creating a strong boundary being located in a single role but you know maybe they're being two and two so what does the nature of the boundary end up looking like there when you have compelling reasons to create a strong boundary in both cases does this revert back to to it just being an overall strong boundary or does the asymmetry um, still get maintained
0: oh neat Um, what's something that you're working on right now that you're really excited about and you think is the most promising research that you're doing?
2: Yeah, well, uh, there's one paper that I've been, or there's, there's one that's occupying most of my time right now. And that's actually a piece about, that's more of a methodological piece about doing research in cross-language settings. Um, so how... The nature of language differences, whether they be caused by speaking different languages, by dialect differences, by proficiency differences, uh, how those impact the qualitative me- the qualitative research process, and how they change the way we have to think about theory method alignment, and sort of change that to be about theory method language or linguistic
1: alignment. A question that I always like to ask, you know, for our non academic listeners, you do, this paper can be very Uh, beneficial you know especially because a lot of people have to balance two roles Um, you know we as PhD students we have two roles you know that have different expectations so for our non-academic listeners what takeaways can they infer from, you know, your work? That's a good question.
2: Part of that depends on on who the the non-academic is. So, mm-hmm. if I were speaking with, let's say, development organizations themselves, so the organizations like Health Org, um, the the student, and we use in the paper, who sort of oversee and, and rely on community volunteers to do be the last mile connections to communities. Those organizations largely ignore the fact that people have other roles and they sort of ignore and don't understand the tensions that are created by that holding of multiple roles. There's this very myopic focus just on like, this is the stuff we engage with them with. We don't really understand the rest of it. So one of the very simple things would be just stop ignoring that. Um, stop stop ignoring that and start trying to understand how you can perhaps reduce the the role contrasts between what you're trying to get people to do in terms of you know healthcare outreach and the roles they already hold. Because if you can reduce the contrast in those expectations, you might end up with people who are better able to integrate these things throughout uh, you know, all of their activities. And that benefits the the individual much better. Yeah, that that's probably the most dir- direct uh, uh, way way of speaking about it. And of course, there's a way of speaking to people who hold multiple roles, but uh, that's that's more complicated in a way. I don't think I have a short answer for 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 how to how to think about that.
0: <laughs> Do you have any advice uh, for PhD students or newer scholars that are starting their uh, junior faculty yeah. years that you want to share about what you think? helped really make you um, successful with publishing at AMJ in particular?
2: Yeah, thanks for asking that question. Um, I can't say I'm going to be a wealth of great advice here, uh, but hopefully something that uh, will resonate with somebody. You know, By and large, from a qualitative standpoint, focus on getting quality data and paying attention to what you find is like interesting, unexpected in the data. Focus on that nugget there. So I had the benefit in my second year as a PhD student, Tima Bansel, who's at Ivy, was at the time one of the uh, associate editors at AMJ. And I remember that uh, one of the projects I had was I had to read through all of her decision letters and look at why papers had been rejected. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the the main reasons was just there was nothing interesting there, Um, as well as this trying to trying to weave too many things into a story. So instead of focusing on that core nugget that's super interesting, people were trying to tell too broad of a story and it was getting confusing. And if the, you know, though that might be true to the data, it's going to ultimately confuse the uh, uh, confused reviewers, confuse readers because they have a. They do not have the same grounded understanding of the data as as does the author team, almost by definition.
0: Sure. Yes. Yeah. No. I mean, that makes a lot of sense.
2: Yeah. It's again one of those things that's much easier to say than to actually do. At the end of the day.
0: Yeah, definitely. It seems like that was a really good opportunity to be able to read those decision letters and vicariously learn through other people like what you should and shouldn't be focusing on.
2: Yeah, that was uh, it. Was really cool.
0: All right. Well, I think that was all the questions that I personally had. Nick, do you have any extras that you want to ask?
1: No, I think I, I got all of my questions with really great answers.
0: Patrick, do you have anything you would like to drop in the episode and brag about for a minute?
2: Oh, I don't think I have anything to brag about. Uh, I think I, I would be briefly interested to learn what you folks are, are working on now. You know, I've spent uh, about 40 minutes now speaking about uh, speaking a paper of mine. I'd, I'd like to learn a little bit about your stuff. Um, whether or not that's quality to make it into your episode, that's up to you. But I'd be interested <laughs> either way.
0: Nick, you can totally go first.
1: Okay. Yeah, mine's very short. So I'm a second year PhD student. I study entrepreneurship. I published on a topic of what we can call uh, contentpreneurs. So those are entrepreneurs through content creation, you know, i.e. social media influencers. Oh, okay. So, yeah, so I'm curious um, about everything there is to know about those who make money on the Internet.
2: How uh, how's that being received by let's say some of the the faculty? Because that 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 strikes me as potentially something that uh, you know the world of social media is. There's definitely an age divide involved, and uh, I'm wondering if you've you've had any challenges with that because of that.
1: So far, nothing too much, but okay. I would say that there hasn't been a ton of work on you know contentpreneurs or social media. Yeah influencers um you know in the top entrepreneurship journals we did a previous interview with ashley and tim Pollock, and they in their amj they looked at instagram you know fitness influencers Mm. and you know what makes them successful you know on social media but that's some of the only work that's actually been done you know on social influencers so there it seems as if it's a it's a context that has a lot of you know potential yes yeah
0: and there's a little bit been done in like the marketing literature they don't call it contentpreneurs and they don't pitch it as they are entrepreneurs so I think it's definitely um a contribution that you're bringing to the entrepreneurship literature but it gives you a little bit of validity and uh legitimacy to be able to leverage some of that literature too to say hey different disciplines are kind of looking at this but this is how it's important for the entrepreneurship literature. So I think you've definitely you're on to something really great Nick.
2: Yeah, that, that sounds super cool. It, it it strikes me as, you know, there's not many people speaking about it right now, which that that can always be a signal that it's not something worth speaking about, but I think this is widespread enough of a phenomenon that it uh, it should it should probably get researched. It's just uh, connecting to those ongoing entrepreneurship conversations.
1: Will yeah. require a bit of finesse. But yeah, it's, I'm excited for the journey, you know. Okay, So actually, just
2: don't get pushed around by the literature. Remember that you're looking at something different.
0: Yeah, and I like to, um, I have a little bit of a wide range of interests.
2: Role theory but I, being one of them?
0: Yes, one of them is definitely role theory. Um, and I think that's actually how they all kind of connect together because they ultimately bubble down to roles at the end of mm-hmm. the day. But I know before I've gotten some feedback from other Faculty at different universities, when they ask me this question, they're like, "Oh, don't say that. You need to say that you're one track. You've you're you do this one thing." And I'm like, "Okay, thank you, I appreciate it." But I mean, I just wouldn't be genuine to myself and have a true conversation with somebody. So I just whatever. I I don't really care. And uh, but I would say that um, a lot of it bubbles down to role theory research, and I really like looking at the dark side of socialization. So a lot of that includes like the dark triad, um, dark personalities. Um, I would like to understand how people communicate with each other. And then especially whenever you bring in that dark side element. And uh, one of the papers in my dissertation that I'm working on is about how one bad actor was able to um, gain The trust of everyone around him, even though time and time again, he was proving not to be a trustworthy person. And I mean, he did a lot of damage. He was in, he was associated with like five different organizations. He was sexually abusing, um, children. And that is a grand challenge that needs to be addressed. The management does need to be looking at because ultimately we are, um, a a site for where these crimes occur. And if Mm -hmm. we want to try to better our society and show that we don't have tolerance for this behavior, um, um, organizations have to do their part and part of that is we have to, you know, do the research and find out what they're actually doing to be successful. So mm-hmm. that's one of the papers in my dissertation that I'm looking at. So that's kind of stuff that I do. Like. Yeah,
2: that is that is some heavy stuff, but definitely some very important stuff as well. Yeah. I want to say thanks for, for putting together the, the podcast and for inviting me on. Hopefully, uh, hopefully I managed to convey something useful here. If not, feel free to just delete the whole thing.
1: It's oh. all good. <laughs>
2: But uh we'll, don't yeah, worry, no, this,
0: we'll be fine. We'll, we have yeah. some good ones.
2: <laughs> okay. This is uh but yeah, this is this is super interesting. And I I also just wanna, you know, say you're asking me to do this sort of opened up uh your podcasts. Uh to me. I hadn't come across them before. Uh I, I mean you probably don't have the biggest Spotify following yet. Um yeah. <laughs> working on it. Uh yeah. <laughs> but uh yeah, you've got some interesting stuff there. I was able to uh take a listen through yesterday while uh while doing some cooking. So oh.
0: Good. Well, um, whenever we get this episode posted, we'll definitely send you an email to the link so you can find it real fast. And uh, I hope we have a long life listener through yeah. uh, getting to know you.
2: Well, I I hope you have a long and prosperous academic career that allows you to keep putting out new episodes. Uh, thank yeah, we hope so. Us too. <laughs> yeah. Though 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 the name will have to evolve, you know, because uh, because it, yeah. it it won't work once you once you get a once you get a job. <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah. No. Then it'll have to change it. We should probably be working writing
2: <laughs> writing writing we probably should probably writing, be brands. writing <laughs> yeah
0: <laughs> definitely well thank you so much for talking with us and i think this was a great episode and i'm excited to get into editing it
2: awesome well thanks folks <laughs> and uh i'll uh, i'll chat with you later Sounds good luck good. on both of your research as well
0: thank Appreciate you it. you too